The femme fatale and her many precursors have been around. In our introduction to the season, we expanded a bit on that longevity. Look back to the early mythologies, to the Odyssey, to the Garden of Eden. You'll find traces of the archetype we've come to associate with noir. Compared to all that, the end of the silent film era seems positively modern. Yet it's there we start, not at the beginning of the femme fatale's long literary existence, nor at any number of earlier cinematic appearances. Fittingly, we begin with that age-old myth of the woman who cracked open a very bad box. There is undeniably something stirring in the cinema at this time, as the 20s bleed into the 30s, and the world hurtles closer and closer toward all-consuming darkness. Fitting, then, that we start this season in Europe, where mankind feels especially corruptible. If only there were someone to blame for their damnation. Enter the fallen woman, the mistress, the cabaret singer, the whore. She dominates cinema of this era even as she paves the way for more outwardly chaste but more inwardly duplicitous types to follow. Perhaps she had to fall for the femme fatale film noir to rise. It's that evolution that we'll be looking out for as we queue up Pandora's Box, The Blue Angel, and La Chienne. What's your new book about? A detective. He falls for the wrong woman. What happens? She kills him. Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket. Suppose I let you over the warning this time. Suppose it doesn't take. You're not too smart, are you? <laughs> I like that in a man. Hate is a very exciting emotion. I hate you so much that I think I'm going to die from it. What have we done to each other? What will we do? I'm not apologizing for what I did. I'm apologizing for what I didn't do. Silencio. Hello, and welcome to Celluloid Dirt, where two friends get together to watch new and familiar noir films, then talk about them. I'm one of those friends, Tristan Johnson, joined by my friend, Fred Pelzer. And tonight, we're exploring three European classics that straddle the silent and sound eras, which also happen to be cornerstone texts in one very prominent archetype of that era, the fallen woman. An archetype which is a pretty clear precursor to the emergence of the femme fatale we all know from film noir's golden age. And while there are a lot of similarities between these films in some regards, they also each approach their often doomed leading ladies in very different ways. Ready to dig in, Fred? Let's do it. To start things off, let's look at Pandora's Box from 1929. All right. Directed by G.W. Pabst and starring Louise Brooks with supporting performances by other actors. I forgot to write that in. <laughs> uh, starring the inimitable, 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 the, uh, the glamorous, inimitable? the inimitable. <laughs> I'm sorry. I got like four hours of sleep last night for no good reason, too. I just woke up and couldn't fall back asleep. Uh, starring the magnificent Louise Brooks. Uh, and written by G.W. Pabst and Ladislas Vajda, and based on Frank Wedderkin's play, Ed Erdgeist. 
And uh, we know Frank Wedkind, Wedkind from what uh, modern theater staple? Spring Awakening. Oh, shit. Uh, he's the, the um, or, uh, author of the original text behind that. Hmm. Crazy. Wild. All right. So Pandora's Box, for those that are not up on their latest in silent cinema, uh, follows Louise Brooks, who's playing Lulu, uh, whose time as mistress to Ludwig Sean comes to an end when he decides to marry. However, uh, she falls back in with an old client of hers, Shigulch, Shigulch, who sets her up with entertainer Rodrigo Quast. Lulu isn't done with Sean, though, and she ends up as part of his son's musical review. She ends up seducing him again, his engagement falls apart, and Lulu and Sean marry instead. Except that he then catches Lulu with, with Shigulch and Quast during the wedding reception, passions ignite, and Sean ends up dead. That's only half of it. This is an epic descent through unsavory spaces, culminating in a truly bleak encounter with the devil incarnate. Louise Brooks earns her mythic stature. This movie burns some serious plot. <laughs> yes, I mean, it feels, because it's originally two plays, right? Like, this is actually the part one and part two combined into one film. Yeah, it's got some length to it. I'm, I'm, silent, silent films kind of... Uh, I feel like they're all or nothing. You're you you either are are going in for for something epic like greed or or mm. or, or this or Metropolis or you're or you're packaged up in a in a very efficient under an hour kind of uh, right kind that they filmed in like two days and right. Uh, and this is very very late silent era, of course. Right. Uh, I mean, sounds already started at this point, um, but what? Europe is still kind of making that transition um yeah no i mean and it's beautiful i mean like definitely to me the the selling point of this film is amongst other things the cinematography um some of the close-ups on faces are marvelous just like caressing the face it's so soft but had you seen this before no i hadn't i think i watched this first back in college when i took a, a film noir class and and we this up as a as a precursor so uh, i i think uh, like it, i think it was film, it was film noir in a global context and so especially getting um the the early weimar cinema influences on it feels sure. pretty vital um no it makes sense uh, I mean, there's some yeah. striking images in here that would not feel out of place in a 40s noir for sure uh you know and i i put this in my letterbox review so i'm just going to quote myself here but i'm also just quoting Truffaut and hitchcock but um you know, I feel like it, you you read interviews with a lot of um, silent film directors who made the transition to to working in sound, and whether whether or not that they were successful. I mean, this is both like Hitchcock, but also um, uh, like several of the the directors in uh, in the parades gone by. They all talk about how the you know the combination of stagey dialogue and the technical limitations of the microphones set filmmaking and like visual storytelling back 30 years and watching this is one of those like yeah this feels strikingly modern in the the actual technical filmmaking at work and it's something that like filmmakers especially hollywood filmmakers had to kind of relearn how to do putting all content of uh, of our our season proper aside this episode is a really 
um, a really fascinating excursion into what that looking at both sides of that dynamic uh, because you can totally tell in the in the films that are that are about to follow um, mm -hmm. the not it's not even just about the the struggles it's what those struggles I think are are forcing uh, are what kind of attention it's taking away from the directors and the and the entire production because they have to deal with these <laughs> damn sound issues instead of focusing on the craft right and just the setup and pure you know the other thing to me that's always striking about watching sound film is how much in the good ones often how much of the conversations don't get title cards right like you understand going into a scenario into a specific scene or sequence objective emotional relationship and the performance is enough to convey the generals if not the specifics of what's being exchanged and it's enough to get us to the next the next step um and again it's just it it really was an excitingly visual form of storytelling that was its own thing that then kind of folded in more theatricality and more music and in these other elements which is you know I mean, like sound design is its own amazing piece of filmmaking technology that that can do a lot. But there was stuff that was lost in that transition that so, took a while to so recover. Crazy! You get to the end of the the twenties and you just see this. Um, it, it basically it becomes a different medium. Yeah. Um, and and the the level of uh, of craft behind whether it's whether it's Passion of Joan of Arc or Man of, Man with a Movie Camera or or the wind or metropolis, whatever, um, just like seeing what these films are achieving. And then all of a sudden it's just, it's just gone. And, uh, and so I love films from that era. And, and it's kind of cause of that, that if you made me pick my favorite 10 year span in, in film, I would probably tell you the late twenties to the, the mid thirties pre-production code, just because I think it's so fascinating watching that dynamic. And then, and there's, the early thirties are like kind of a mess, but also kind of the wild west. And I love, I love how, um, um, I, I love seeing how, I don't know, rough and raw experimental, um, fly by the seat of their pants. A lot of those productions are. Not my favorite period. It's a great period. <laughs> Not my favorite period, but I totally makes sense for you, <laughs> but we should talk about the actual I content, suppose. which is what we're here for. But I, I said it's off in this, disc, but it was just something I, I immediately no, came to mind while watching it. I was just we're like, we're yes, gonna is... we've we've asked for it by by pulling um, rather pivotal texts from both sides of the that divide. Sure. Especially uh, when we'll get to it for more yeah. uh, anyway. All right. So the um um. So Dietrich uh, was originally considered for the lead, um, and she'll be popping up in a moment later. Like, uh, the, I'm sure we both read the same Wikipedia article, but that she was like about to sign the paperwork yep. when um, he found out that Brooks is actually available because he had sent it to her and his her agents passed or something. Or, and then he was like, "Never mind, Dietrich, get out. Brooks, you're in." Um, and uh, but it's like it's iconic, right? Like this, and what's the other one that she did? The like matched a girl or um, uh, Diary of a Lost Girl, which Diary is the only girl, other yeah. the only other Brooks and the only other Paps movie I've seen. So uh, uh, and, but and this is the the more memorable. Of I mean, like literally, literally iconic. Like the haircut is part of this time period. Like this is and the actual definite literally, literally iconic. And and this is certainly a case where I mean we're gonna we're gonna go through a long period of um, of uh, through especially the first half of our season where 
um, where our femme fatales are 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 still secondary to a, a, the male protagonist in a lot of these stories. But in th this case, we are we are following Lulu through through this film. This is this is her this is her descent. This is her series of trials, and um, and and it's just like every the the camera loves her and and. And she's vivacious, and she is, um, and she's just someone that leaves this indelible imprint on on cinema of that time. Uh, okay. oh, the the human face uh, does it does wondrous things, and she's no, so yeah. different than Dietrich would be. If I, oh, it's yeah. hard to imagine that. Um, no, this is didn't the I think I read the director saying like she had the the perfect mix of like naivety and sexuality that you could by that she drives men mad but at the same time maybe isn't intentionally doing it which i think is sort of an interesting differentiator between the fallen woman and the femme fatale right that like at least especially with this iteration um and that's the other thing too is that this is an iteration right like this wasn't the only film adaptation of that play or that source material it had been of uh, adapted a variety of ways so my understanding is that this kind of like riffs on the text a bit in that sort of loosey-goosey ip approach that so many directors in the, in the time period took yes well and you know just also is just normal for adaptations anyway um, well but me more like kind of didn't you know i mean maybe i was just reading between the lines too much my my i took my takeaway with takeaway was like maybe didn't really have the rights oh yes <laughs> Thinking of like Murnau and Van and uh, Dracula, just being like, "Well, we'll just do it." It's yeah. a different country; they don't care. Um, and I could be mistaken. That, that I said that's me reading between the lines too much, but um, but no, so I I I think that's sort of important too, right? That this is like a specific representation of a larger body work that was very popular with people. They wouldn't have kept making these adaptations if people didn't want to keep watching it in all these different forms and be like, "Yes, women do be like that." Um, and, uh, and gosh, all right. So Brooks is, um, Brooks is very compelling throughout this. Um, she, she goes on quite the, quite the journey throughout. Um, of course we've got the mythological ties that are kind of, kind of holding her down that are made, that are made extremely explicit in here. So uh, it is text. It is not subtext. It is not subtext. No, it is just thrown right out there. I I, I took from this. I mean, this this felt rather than the the structure of say the the noir films that we will get to. This this to me was like like the Odyssey. It was uh, it was just a a series of of encounters as she's moving along on this dark journey through a um through an underworld of crime and and having you know various misfortunes beyond her control uh, the forces of forces of man and and devil uh that that befall her yeah leading be... right up to a, a, a very intense ending yes i uh, no, I, I think that I, I think that reference makes a ton of sense um to me it feels kind of driven in part by the conventions of the serial of uh you know so it can be broken up into like 10 minute chunks and sold that way of the source material that is a series of like 
acts that are one location and then you do every all the business in that one location and then you move on to a new location um so i feel like there's like a lot of extra textual elements that are lending itself towards favoring that construction um so i don't know how intentional that is but in effect i totally agree like it is that sort of um i, I think you have your journey into the criminal underworld or journey through the criminal underworld and it's sort of um you know stages of hell kind of we're we're gonna go deeper and de you know starts off with a very tasteful kept lady and then we just move down the rungs of desperation uh with each step of the way until you're getting sent off to casablanca uh and then and then you're and then you're in london dear god yeah oh um We'll get to that in a moment. Um, so, so I think as as far as a as far as a precursor, as far as a study for how this this leads into noir, like fr just from a narrative standpoint, based on based on all this, there's not it, this is this does not resemble the tightly plotted um, noir films, but it's also it's a it's a silent epic, right? It's it it's not interested in that kind of. Um, that in in pulling that kind of narrative tightness together um this is a, a character study no yeah definitely but i feel like the individual episodes do touch on things to come right like not just with this archetype but uh with the trial with the with murder with you know like each of the incidents are the kind of thing that on its own would become fleshed out as a noir entry but here it's just like enough to cover this episode and then we're on to the next one and um and so the right. effect and, i think is, is yeah different. And, and despite all of the 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 burning through plot that does happen here it's not like it's speeding through these locations it lives in its in its sets for a little while yeah. um it just it just has a um a lot to go through and, and, a, and a runtime to match yeah and again it's uh, it's sort of a little i don't know the like the recurring characters make sense because it's again it's originally a stage play and so you're you know carrying the actors through so it makes sense but it, it is sort of a like man these two guys just keep popping up wherever she is and like just keep following following along and eventually you know one of them doesn't but um you know it's it no, it is an interesting effect it, it does provide a nice a nice counterbalance to it and her old um her old patron or her original patron uh, kind of being that her dad line. right right to the yet yeah, uh uh i did not read him as her dad uh but as, wasn't that the, as the wasn't that the uh, ultimate reveal is that she is like claiming that but actually he is her dad and he she was embarrassed by it am i making that uh, up i don't i don't th i didn't i don't think that that's um I, i'm I, not I, trying I, to be like this I is my textual read no. i thought that was text that i'm remembering oh, from no i could be off too but i did not i did not um mm, leave with that uh with that impression um well i'm checking on that and just sort of again Paternal, like the... sure but um uh but the um Something else I just thought was really interesting that speaks to the moment, right? Speaks to this this nineteen end of twenties, early thirties German moment that like she is very casually Jewish, right? Like in the very first scene, you see a menorah oh, in yeah. the backdrop. It's just not not uh, not something that's made any kind of 
any deal with, but you're totally right. I hadn't even like written that down, but I remember that. Yeah, no, it was just, it was such a, and in part because of what you know is to come and like, you know, I think I've talked previously on here about how much I loved the rules of the game, which kind of operates in a similar, like when you know what's going to happen in real life shortly thereafter, it, it makes it, it makes it uh, hit differently. Uh, I, I think that that little detail maybe lands differently for us now than it did at the time. That, um, that's spot on. But it's just sort of interesting, I thought. Um, okay. Yeah, according to Wikipedia, um, when Sean confronts her in the bedroom, uh, she says, don't, Shigulch is my father. And then Shigulch and Quast leave, and then... I don't take that as as him actually being her father, though. Oh, I, okay. Like I, I, I don't, I don't take her word for that. There. Interesting. That's, that, that's to me. That's what you would say. That I mean, you would, you would say that <laughs> to try and get out of that mess you're in, right? Like that. I, I don't, I don't take that as. Oh, I think it's a valid read. But, uh, but I'm open to. to Hey, this is not an objective science. It is a subjective art. So, uh, what to make of that ending? I mean, it was it's wild, right? I'm like, can you imagine if a movie today ended with like, and then she ran into ten, but Ted Bundy, right? Right. Like, then what? I mean, it to me, it's like, like. Uh, you know, like Tarantino fucking with with That's true. histories. That's right? a very good, like, very good it, comp. Um, like it's it's designed to provoke, and obviously we're nearly a century later, and and you know people still understand Jack the Ripper. That is the devil incarnate. That that like the serial killer, the uh, right from which others continue to spawn. Well, but but he's also like. he's also not treated as the devil though right like he's treated as a man who's trying to do better and falls to his worst instincts and so like ultimately he is you know to me he is he is less devil than like the final rung on the series of men that she can't help but drive insane through through lust and that lust is expressed in different ways and, and results I mean, in different guess, tragedies, but you I know. guess you already know it by this, you, regardless of whether it was Jack the Ripper or not. But you you would know it wasn't going to end happily. But the fact that it is Jack the Ripper, and you know that she's not going to change him. I mean, it is, it is a wild choice, hundred percent. But also, like I don't know, it feels like the other thing too is that there aren't. I would guess that serial. I mean, serial killer wasn't an idea, right? And so. You can't, I, I don't think there would have been a cultural idea of like another guy going around killing a bunch of women that you have to be on the lookout. For. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I mean, I guess there is um, like M is kind of operating in that space. But just in terms of because these episodes are going by so fast, being able to shorthand it, you can't be like London town. There's a serial killer on the loose. Be on the lookout. You like the only reference is Jack the Ripper's out. Be on the lookout. 
true. Yeah, and it's uh, like that's one of those those things that I mean, just the fact that he's lingered in public consciousness mm. for for so long. But that doesn't mean that that it, it operates exactly the same. I mean, he's clearly feared. He's clearly known and feared. And uh, but yeah, the the serial killer has had many decades to evolve into into some truly terrifying places that yeah. uh, that that weren't even foreseen at this point. Right. Well, but even, but even again, like M is a pretty. You know, it goes some places. So there's there's definitely I don't know. Uh, and uh, and we're gonna we're gonna dig in a lot um uh to the this like uh, in the next episode in particular into this darkness inherent in in man and and fighting against your yes. impulses. So there's more of that to come. But it, I think that's one of the other interesting uh, differences here, and even between this movie and the other ones we're going to talk about is that this one feels like. I mean, again, it 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 purposely positions itself in a very mythological and in uh, space, but you know, it it feels like everybody is being acted upon by forces outside of their control, right? Like Absolutely. she is not trying to ruin these men; it just happens because of who she is, and these men aren't like driven by like lust in the noir sense where you're like yes and then uh, i'm gonna kill for her or whatever it, it it is like like almost a superhero where you're like there are pheromones in the air and i'm just being driven mad to rage um by this woman you know like it 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 feels so much more verging on um allegory as opposed to like psychological realism which also is just a function of the time right like that that's not the thing that people were doing, but more than most, this feels like akin to like a mystery play, almost. Just so heightened in every way, and the yes. and, and and you know silent silent cinema and 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 Weimar cinema in particular. And one thing I noted on here is just how all all of the characters at, at, that are surrounding Lulu, um, they're just so grotesque, and the it, mm. it is it's. It's something that I I do think bleeds over into the into the noir era, where when you get outside of our outside of our detective or our femme fatale, outside of the core the core characters that you're rooting for in some regard, the characters on the fringes in noir are 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 dangerous operators. They're they're you know they're they're Sydney Green Street and Peter Lorre and people and people moving in um, with with heightened caricatures of 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 uh, you know normal bad men <laughs> and and i think that you see a lot of that foundation in um in things like like this and in, in early weimar cinema yeah i mean whether or not shagulch is is actually her father i mean he he verges on like commedia dell'arte in terms of appearance and manner so no i, th I think that's a, a smart pull uh continue that, that 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 does continue into larger than life characters in in and, noir and that's gonna um, I think I think there's elements that uh, that that carries through with with our other films from this evening as well. Uh, any other other thoughts that you've got on? Yeah, I mean, just the one other thing for me on this. Uh, as much as I love the cinematography and Brooks, I didn't love the film overall. And I think one of the things that really bumped me um, that I had a hard time recovering from was the 
the trial scene just because it is like not the strength of silent cinema to be like, yes, let's have a bunch of characters give them speeches. Um, and that that moment like really arrested a lot of narrative momentum for me of just like pages of monologuing. I, I can understand that. I think, I mean, I think I'm, I'm sympathetic in, in so far as like Passion of Joan of Arc has never been, I, even though I can recognize its classic status and I can recognize what like it does so well, but also like it's, it's, um, it's more of an obstacle than most silent films are for me. Oh, we so. see like Passion of Joan of Arc, I didn't mind because there's so much of an emphasis on like faces and, you know, like it is, it's all being it's all doubling whereas this felt very much just like i'm going to shoot some coverage of the guy standing up and starting to talk and then we're just going to read all of this stuff and i was just like it, it's certainly oh, it, it, it certainly stalls things right yeah. right in the middle right as right as you feel like things should be should be carrying you through strong to the second half and it, it just it, it is i it's not enough to um, to really sour me on the film at all. I still really like it, but uh, but I, I think it's the weak point. Yeah, and sure. I'm probably overstating the degree to which that... That was just like a specific moment that I was really struggling with the film. Um, but but yeah, I don't know. Like it's It definitely has its moments and it was worth, worth the watch, but I did not love it as much as the other two films that we're going to talk about. Well, shall we jump into the sound era? Let's do it. Do you want to alternate since there's three? Yeah, yeah. Why not? And besides, uh, I want to talk about uh, about my boy Joseph von Sternberg. Uh, all yours. All right. Uh, so our next film up is The Blue Angel from 1930. I'm so sorry. All right, The Blue Angel, uh, directed by Joseph von Sternberg from 1930, starring Emil Jennings and Marlena Dietrich. Uh, it's written by Carl Zuckmeyer, Carl Bohlmuller, uh, Robert Liebman, and Sternberg. Uh, it's based on Heinrich Mann's 1905 novel, Professor Unrat, which translates as Professor Garbage. I'm sure that there's a little more nuance there, but maybe there isn't. <laughs> uh, so uh, <laughs> the plot, Professor Emmanuel Rath is a put upon high school teacher Constantly tormented by his students, he follows them one night into a local burlesque club, the Blue Angel, where the boys have gone to see Marlena Dietrich's Lola Lola perform. Raff is back the next night, re returning a pair of smuggled undergarments only. This leads to a long night of passion with Lola. He is found out, fired from his job, but then rebounds by promptly marrying her. Too bad that uh, it only starts to go downhill from there. Uh, his downward spiral is just beginning. Uh, this was, uh, uh, by the way, uh, uh, the, the first German sound film, um, and it was filmed simultaneously in German and English. Uh, and, uh, 
and is the beginning of um, of a, a very fruitful partnership between Sternberg and Dietrich. Uh, before we get into all that, Fred, uh, any relationship with this movie? Would, uh... No, this is a this is a first for me. I haven't watched any other Sternberg either. Um, so uh, so no, I uh, but I I quite enjoyed it. It was my favorite of the three. Uh, Sternberg, great. Um, he's got some good silent era era films. Um, Underground. Um, the Last Command, uh, which also starred Emil Jennings, was actually um, he, uh, Jennings was the first Best Actor winner at, at the Oscars um, for Last Command. Yeah, um, I saw that he. Um, I, no, I'm sorry. I've seen Morocco. Oh, oh, you've seen oh that which is that which is my least favorite of their of their collaborations. I didn't love it. Um, I think that's um, I think that's their weakest. I think. Uh, Dietrich has an amazing introduction, and then it kind of just fizzles out after that. Truth be told, I'm not a Gary Cooper fan, um, sure. so I, I don't think that helps anything. Um, um, but um, but Sternberg and Dietrich form a a fascinating partnership, and I and I love this is it's really fun to see the the foundations of it, and this does typically get cited as Sternberg's best film. Um, Although I will, I will gladly make a, a many cases otherwise. Um, but, uh, but they, so they, they, they go over to Hollywood right after this, and um, and pretty much from here on out, he, he, him, and Dietrich work to cultivate her image, and it's just this series of films that are that that increasingly um, <laughs> play up her image focusing uh shooting her through shadow and bale and flame and and contrasting her with all sorts of of grotesqueries i i do really like uh shanghai express which we toyed with including here um but um but i absolutely adore uh scarlet empress which is dietrich as catherine the great shot in this uh lavish russian court filled with gargoyles and and leering men and uh and a demented husband and it's um it's one of the most decadent movies of all time and is a total shock to the senses for anyone expecting typical hollywood of the 1930s uh so anyway i love these two dearly uh this is really fun to see where they kind of get their start together as collaborators um, and even though this is ostensibly Janning's um, show, Dietrich steals it every moment she's on the screen. He, he by the end, uh, he is um, he is clearly subservient in this dynamic, and uh, and it's uh, it's it's a fun descent to watch. Yeah, um, no, I definitely agree that she's you know you're watching you're like oh yeah that's a movie star. Um, the like she just reads on camera, you know, the classic. The camera loves her. Um, I thought it was interesting with Janning that how or Janning's that is, it, is there an S thing? Yeah, it's interesting yeah. with Janning's that he starts off very mannered in a not just like in a character sense, but in a very classically trained actor sense. Uh, in his performance, but then, and at first I kind of, I found it very distancing from the movie, um, especially in comparison to Dietrich. 
but then when they make those big time jumps and he just becomes like a broken man it ended up becoming very effective and i, I don't know if that was a, a purposeful choice if it was you know if this is a um uh, uh streetcar named desire and just contrasting acting styles proving to be very effective and thematically appropriate like i i don't know where this lands on that scale but it, it worked really well for me to land his destitution by the end yeah this is this is certainly a character study of of Jennings specifically and and he's um he's got chops as an actor he's um he he like last command is just a, a big bold performance and um and he gets to show some some serious range here like uh like you said uh and he pulls it off uh because this is uh it, it is it's really pitiful where he goes through the the course of this movie um and you know i i think it's uh i we're we're in this stage where uh where everything that we're looking at here where the the you're you're comparing your your proto femme fatales to to men who are not none of them are fashioned in the typical in, in the typical masculine hero sense these are this is a stuffy academic at the start in the case here and here for sure i don't know i feel like the um son in pandora's box is a pretty classic like ingenue character i i i think i think I see your point, but I think that um, I the movie doesn't treat him doesn't give him the uh, like I mean, of all of of all the the male characters. I mean, in Pandora's box, everyone's everyone is second fiddle to very true. It's a very uh, light sketch. Right. It is not a so character character. That's true. Where, whereas here, like he, th this is and same same with 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 our, our next film, um, Jen Jennings is is the lead uh, yes. and. Yeah. And uh, and yet, this is not someone that you you wouldn't think that you wouldn't think to follow him through, you know, your standard narrative. And certainly, by the time we get to noir, um, um, it it's going to take a little bit different shape. Um, even even when you get to the the noir era, I feel like you're and and we'll, we're going to cover him um, shortly. But like you know, you have like your Edward G. Robinson type, but he's still. Um, he's still more traditionally um, uh, and more polished, I, I guess, um, as opposed to stuffy. Sure. Well, I think it's going to be really interesting because, you know, we're going to be finishing up with La Chienne here. It's going to be really interesting to revisit that with Scarlet Street and and to compare exactly those and, yeah. and how that text, you know, why is one noir and one is noir adjacent? Right. Yeah. Uh, and this... So, so Blue Angel to me of of the three, of the three films that we're looking at tonight, to me is the one that falls the farthest from what we we think of as a traditional noir. Um, it's it's not it's not particularly violent. Um, it's not it doesn't hinge on on tight turns or uh, it doesn't hinge on on. Uh, any great deceptions just tragedy um and uh and, and it's still very much a character piece and yet it's got and because of because of Dietrich's character um being such a, a pivotal moment for um for the 
this proto femme fatale. And of course, Dietrich gets some some femme fatale bona fides as the genre develops later on. Uh, uh, it, it's still very much an important one to consider. I, I couldn't I couldn't imagine leaving this out of the conversation. Right. I mean, it's yeah, it's a foundational block in this in the psychology of that relationship archetype, right? That like the um, and I, and I hadn't thought about it this way, but you pointing out that both um, Rath here and uh, Simone and, and La Chienne are not like man's men. Maybe that is the missing ingredient, right? That it's like you've got more intellectual characters, so it, it is that longer walk to reaching a point of violence, whereas having more um, physical characters in like the next iteration uh, being and, able and to I resort think, to violence a little faster. I don't know. I, I think that's probably worthy of a, a much longer analysis because because truthfully I don't have as good of a grasp on what like that leading man is. And you know, you've got your your Douglas Fairbanks uh kind of kind of type, right? But like like I I, I mean it it just it becomes so much more solidified as you get into the sound era and and the 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 classic leading men of Hollywood start to emerge as major players and they kind of live in the the public consciousness is like that that's that's who you expect to see as the as anchoring mm -hmm. your your noir um whereas we're still so early going yeah and I think the thing too is is that all three of these are still not that noir isn't in the code era a morality play, but these are pure tragedy, right? Like they are each one of these ends in purely in tragic death, right? There's not murder and then tragic death. There's just tragic death. Yeah, well, Pandora's box has um, has has murder. Um, I mean, well, that's but... true, but. But you know, but, but it's still yes. it's still a tragedy, right? It's not like right. there isn't conspiracy to commit no. murder. You know, it's no, not it's... it's not first degree in any of these situations. It's it's I it's... wouldn't I I wouldn't call I certainly wouldn't call Blue Angel a, a crime film by any any stretch of the imagination. Right. Whereas I whereas I do think um La Chien, I qualify under those those terms it does but it's not you know i, I, I at least hear that to, case no no i think it, it absolutely like the back half engages in some like i mean like there's some you know that is that is very much like all the all the postman always rings twice and like or even um the man who wasn't there and all the like the wrong man gets like all that stuff classic classic noir crime but more so to me that like speaking specifically to the femme fatale that it is general that it, it results in tragedy for the woman in a way and there isn't the step in between where there's a crime that she wants to have happen yeah the only crime that happens or the only death murder that happens is a tragedy that she did not foresee. And I think that's the other missing like plot ingredient here is that in-between step where first you're like, I'm gonna get you to murder somebody else. And then inevitably I get my comeuppance because you know, you can't have a bad character live at the end of your movie or not go to jail. Uh, 
I also want to I want to pull on what what we we started or um, discussing earlier with with um, the silent era and like now that we're in sound um, that that this is this is certainly a film that is figuring out how sound works. And, uh, and and it's part of the reason that I don't think this is among um, Sternberg's best because he's cl clearly trying to like work out plenty of, work through plenty of other issues here. It's just not as, it's not nearly as visually interesting. Um, uh, his Sternberg's late silent era films are more visually compelling than than a lot of what we we get here. Even though I do like the club, and I think there's there's certainly some some quality mise en scène put together, but uh, it's that um, this part of what um, the classic noir era um, does so well is you know that pulls in the that real play of of light and shadow and Sternberg is going to get to that and going to get really good at it, but he's, he's not quite focused on that here in the, in the ways that I know he's capable of. Yeah. It's definitely not a, a, a cinematography showcase and it took me a little bit to kind of get on its rhythm. Um, and in the end, what was most effective for me was performance and was, mm -hmm. I mean, it was like, it wasn't bad staging and it wasn't bad cinematography. No, no. It, like it, but it was, it was, purely effective it was not stylistic and not, not even effective but um functional it's purely functional of of the three from tonight i think this is the this is the one that's most i'm most limited in its style agreed yeah so one of the reasons that pabst was um was hesitant to cast dietrich was just because she brings so much just this inherent quality of uh of awareness of no understanding um the command that she has over men um and and of her own body and uh she and she truly is of almost any other star you can name she she's someone in extreme command of her sexuality and uh and, and so you know poor I mean, professor rath is not a match rath. for her yeah she sure does um and 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 by the end he is he is a literal clown, uh, and yeah. I mean, the other thing to me, this is really isn't the noir conversation. But the other thing I was just thinking about watching it was like again trying to translate the movie to one hundred years, ninety years later, of like the circus returns to your small town years later, and they're like, by the way, that high school teacher, he's now a clown, and everybody's like. Get the mayor in here. We all need to see this. And it, I don't know. Not that it's unrealistic. It's more just speaking to the ways that community has has changed, and and maybe also it's just a function of me having lived in a city for the last ten years, and as and most of my adult well, life. Being in a city, have but, fallen a little out of vogue. Yeah. Well, I mean that too, but to but just the like the idea that like people give a shit about. I mean, I don't know. It could just be, it could just be that you know. Text is implying that he is known as being this pedantic asshole, and so everybody is like, "Yeah, I can't wait to stick it to him." But because we only ever see him in the context of the school, or eventually going to the burlesque show um, at the start, to me, it, it feels more like everybody's really invested in like that high school teacher man. It, he's he's made a fool of himself, and again, maybe it's, it is also speaking to the the morals of it, right? That he does get fired simply for 
sleeping with this woman. And, and you know, putting in context of the time, too, uh, gossip, gossip has always been, it True. has always taken some form or another. We just have social media and, and constant celebrity that's that's things like that you know. to occupy ourselves. But, um, you know, that's going to get funneled somewhere. And, uh, and, and someone like the, the um, stuffy professor at the, at the prep school is, is a pretty logical target for it when something goes off. No, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about it in that context, but yeah, the way that like the internet picks a main character of the week and is like, all right, this, you know, little, I was thinking that um, West Elm Cody or whatever, where like the, some, some girl surprises her college boyfriend and comes to visit him. And he's like sitting on the couch with some friends, some of whom are women He's surprised and she gives him a hug and a kiss and then the video ends but then like all of a sudden and it's a very like harmless video but all of a sudden it blows up and everybody's dissecting it and being like no that dude is sleeping with those other two women and he didn't want you to be there if you look at his eyebrows and the way that he raises like it just just obsessing about these people as though they're not people uh which definitely is what's happening here so no i think that's actually a very apt comparison point and that, that that's really i can picture that that it is the rubbernecking of like you're not gonna believe this guy was a professor and now he's doing this clowning shit and he's the saddest guy you've ever seen and somebody and, sharing that on twitter and it blowing up and being everybody being like can you believe this people also like to root for the downfall of hypocrites and see that's the uh, thing i i just didn't get from the text that he was outside of the realm of the high school known as a hypocrite right like that's the one thing where i was like if that's the town as a whole is like this fucking guy i would have just wanted to see a little bit more of him in the town to get a sense that he is a, a prominent public figure of hypocrisy true but i but if you consider that students grow up and remain in the town and he's very much still on true. i I mean, obviously, I'm taking the leap there, but no, no, no. Um, I mean, that's, that's, that's fair uh, too. That, that like, uh, you again, know, he's like someone that... that people would have filtered through and and grown up and and known in the town. Um, no, I think that's and that, I think it goes back to what the original thing that I was bringing up is the feeling to me of I find that in, that I find that interesting that like because I didn't grow up in a small town and didn't and have spent almost all my life outside of a small town, like I don't have that same sense of like everybody truly being in each other's business and being like yeah he's 40 or 50 or whatever so he's taught two or three generations of young men that have come through there so they're all they all know the mayor was one of his students and, and all that like and that in that at the time the text could just imply that and everybody would understand like yeah of course in the small town everybody's had this teacher and everybody knows that he's a dick and now it'd be like you know, I, there's a teacher, I, it just doesn't, it reads to me in a different way, which I find, I always find it fascinating what a movie thinks it can shorthand for contemporary audiences that then needs a little bit extra translation for a modern audience. Yeah, uh, no, I think, I, I think this is a really good, a really it, good example of that, minor... while, not, while not totally losing, this is a good movie, this is, um, it's a very good movie, yes, uh, but just more um, like to our larger, and, and like, it's not, femme fatale noir conversation is uh, completely irrelevant. True, um, and the, and none of this, this is a, this is still quite an accessible movie, I, I think, yeah. for, for anyone that's jumping into, you know, early German sound cinema, um, the, the, there's a reason that this is something that 
that that comes up pretty often. Um, no, I thought I said this was my favorite of the three. It doesn't have the highs of Lashian, but it it is just so well constructed. Um, the movie it reminded me of the most, again, stealing from my own letterbox, is uh, uh, Requ Requiem for a Dream in the same sort of like character arc of just slow and steady downfall. Yeah. Uh, no, I get that. I get that without the, you know, <laughs> hyperkinetic editing and, and camera work. Yes. All right. Enough talking about small town politics. On to La Chienne from 1931. <laughs> Non, je suis, je suis artiste peintre. Ah. Oui. Je commence par en avoir marre de traîner avec moi une bourre comme toi, tu sais. Oh là là, tâche de te débrouiller avec ce mec-là, hein. Ah ben nous, c'est ce que tu veux dire. Ah ça, j'ai jamais pu la franchir complètement pour ce qui est des conduits. All right, directed by Jean, Rena Jean Renoir. Jean Renoir. Uh, and starring uh, Michael Simon, Jeannie Marie, and Georges Flamand. Written by Jean Renoir. Jean Renoir. I just try to make my mouth as soft as possible to do these French names. Uh, written by Jean Renoir, based on the 1930 novel and play of the same name. Uh, so uh, this follows Michael Simon as Maurice, a meek clerk worn down by an oppressive marriage. Uh, and all he really wants to do is be a painter. He then meets Lulu, a prostitute, uh, a... Uh, a lady of the night, and begins to fall for her, even as she concocts a plot alongside her pimp Didi to sell Maurice's artwork for her own. Predictably, tragedy ensues. So, uh, as mentioned earlier, this is eventually, we'll, we'll be revisiting this in a few episodes as Scarlet Street, uh, as a classic noir, um, but it's going to be interesting to talk about why this isn't, and that is, because it definitely isn't. It is pre-noir, but it is not noir. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm really interested to uh, um, to revisit Scarlet Street, which I um, I recall liking quite a bit when I saw it before. Um, and it's been similarly a while since I've seen um, since I've seen this. Had you seen Flashian? I've never seen either. Um, as I've also mentioned, I do con get confused Criss Cross from Scarlet Street and the movie Criss Cross. But uh, <laughs> besides yeah, and that. And and also Fritz Long made a number of movies with um, with Edward G. Robinson and Joan Fontaine or yes. not Joan Fontaine and uh, Joan Bennett. Um, so, so that's only going to add to the the confusion there. Uh, but no, this is a first um, for me. Uh, I've, I've seen Renoir. a few other Renoir uh, and I've enjoyed all of them. Um, and I think there are like glimpses of that greatness in this film. Um, and then uh, Simone, we'll see you again next week for the last turning. In like a transformative uh, yeah. perform. I mean, not transformative necessarily for him, but between the two, I, it took me a sec. I did not realize at first it was the same actor. It wasn't until I was looking at credits he, that I was like, he's, oh. Um, he's hmm. quite the um, the transformative actor. Um, Renoir's um, Bodo Save from Drowning, too, is just uh, like he, he can he can go to extremes. Um, and uh, and I, I enjoy his presence quite a bit. Yeah, no, he's great in this. Uh, I, love, I love Renoir um a lot 
Um, I know I I know I ran on about Sternberg, but um, but I I think I like Renoir even more as a director, and and he has two of my favorite movies of all time um, to his credit. Uh, one of them being the previously discussed Rules of the Game. It's fantastic. Um, and I'm a big fan of The River, also from the fifties. Have not watched that yet. And I think he's this. This is something we'll get into here, but uh, I, I mean, he's he's such a humanist director. He, I think, he legitimately care. Uh, uh, so take take, um, e- even a character like Didi, who is who is really you know, vile, uh, still feels like an actual, um, an actual person. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I for as much as we talked about caricatures earlier, and. And I do, and I do think that that um, um, Simone plays up. Um, you know, he goes broad, and he uh, and all. He's he's a buffoon. Um, he's 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 a a ridiculous man in a lot of ways. But I but ultimately, like these are these all feel like real people, mm-hmm. um, with the possible exception of his wife, who is who is aggressively awful. Yes. Um, uh, over calibrated in that in in that regard for my taste. Yeah, no, no, I totally agree. Like it, it, the moments that we've that we get alone with Dee Dee and with his buddy and all that, it it does it does it goes a long way to humanize him, not in like a in an empathetic fashion, but more just no. really getting at like the frailties of his ego and how he has to like spin everything. And he's like, yeah, he tried to start something with me, but I shut it down and and it, it just lays bare his inner psychology so well. Yeah. I think, I, I think that Didi is actually given, um, you know, enough heft to that role that he's, he escapes just being a, a, a caricature. Um, I don't know. Where um, this this one more than the other two um, uh, that um, that yes, Jane Jane Mar- Maurice, Marie, I'm gonna be bad. I'm, I apologize to anyone that speaks French because I'm very bad at it, and uh, and I'll do my best. But um, she's um, she's a, a much more minor part of this compared to our previous uh, our previous femme fatale archetypes. Yeah, you know, clearly clearly vital in propelling the the plot along, but doesn't. I mean, she's also. It's probably not fair to compare anyone to Brooks and to Beatrix for for sheer screen presence. Yeah, I mean, it's on a plot function level. I think she is the closest to the femme fatale because of the way that she is using, like she is actively using her quote unquote feminine wiles to manipulate the main character to her own personal gain. It's just not the kind of criminal enterprise that like classic noir is going to take it to. Um, but, but yeah, she is, she is operating in that sphere. I think it's, I think it's the humanism of Renoir that kind of like keeps it from being full blown noir because it is so much about like. The film, the film out, um, outright critiques her her place as a as a victim in this this yes, um, male dominated world right yeah it's sympathetic to her and it's sympathetic to the fact that she is in an abusive relationship and does not realize it like it is very knowing about it but it also does not like i think it handles it pretty sub in a pretty subtle fashion whereas you know 
the noir would be much more cynical about all this and would be like yeah every, everybody's a piece of shit am i right but this feels much more like god this, this, this is poor too lady. humanist for for noir and, and it's not this is not pulpy in the slightest the, no it's where, pure drama it is pure right. like character like these are people in a in a in a in a society that has put them in these positions in both and are Pandora's undone by human frailty and and blue angel there's there's certain base level thrills that those films are are throwing at you um uh, uh, from whether lurid or um or or criminal um there's there's pulpy elements to those movies that that linger on into into the noir era whereas that renoir is not interested in in that in the slightest here no but i think also the while while that is it definitely like differentiates it from noir i think also that french realism of the 30s is going to play a part in noir as well in sort of that acknowledgement of crime right in a more like grounded fashion while still being pulpy it plays um and we were we'll definitely be covering this in the the next episode but it plays a really really pivotal role in in teeing up in, in teeing up noir and it's uh and i mean aesthetically it's it's a huge um it, it's a huge building block for for what's to come uh and i think there's a lot of uh you know the the idea of of tortured characters um mm-hmm. that 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 certainly carries over it's just um it uh it it just wants you th- like these these poetic realist films and 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 french cinema of the 30s like legitimately does want you to have some empathy for you for these characters whereas noir doesn't care no largely. no uh not at all um and then also i think the like getting away with the crime of it all and the cover-up part obviously i mean again scarlet street but like that all feels very uh, this movie feels very if the tone was tweaked it would be a coen brothers movie which again the man wasn't there like uh you know what this does with what this does nicely that um, we didn't we don't really see in the other two films quite as as much but like this this feels um like there's much there's so much more of the city um, that we mm. we see here, and that mm-hmm. this pulls us in to that space in a way that well, that... it's also like actually shot on the street, right? I mean, like physically, production wise, it is allowing us into that space, whereas the other two are both studio spaces. Yeah, this is the the and and obviously most of our most of our big noir touchstones are all stateside, but there's certainly a rich tradition of old world noir and uh, and and. And so this feels very much at home with that and just being, I, I don't know, it feels, it feels different being like there on the street and seeing brick and cobblestone and, 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 and living amongst these buildings and shadows. It's uh, it, it really sets that pace in a way that, that, you know, you aren't, you aren't seeing with, with Blue Angel or, or um, Pandora's box. For sure. And, I, and another big part of what, uh, you know, uh, combining that real sense of location and mise-en-scene with the more heightened expressionism of of the Germans as part of that, like, special sauce for noir. Yeah, uh, 
gosh, um, every uh, it's 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 interesting, and it'll be interesting to kind of check in with um, with our directors as we're going on through this. Uh, I don't know a whole lot about Pab's trajectory post um, post Pandora's box and and Diary of a Lost Girl. Sternberg um, immigrates to to Hollywood, where he stays for a good while, and he's certainly among the like like Fritz Long, like Billy Wilder. He's among that that wave of immigrate, uh, yeah. Of, emigre directors um and and Renoir obviously being being French but he's um he you know he has uh he has a a notable World War II uh film to his name and and he's uh I, I it clearly is is someone that is uh that is that is so aware of the of the looming conflict and, and it, it just permeates his work up through the through the 30s um in Europe and uh, and, and I think it'll be it'll be interesting to see, of course, as we get into the noir era proper, just how many of those directors are are um, emigres from, especially Germany. Uh, we're gonna right. we're gonna see it over and over again. Right, you probably all would have watched these movies and then kind of absorbed it into their system. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I I think I mean at this point when we look back on things right now it's 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 very clear in hindsight like what are the big touchstones what what movies is everyone aware of and it's something that we talk about a a decent amount on this podcast um I when when it comes to going back this far I'm I as you know you can assume a certain level I guess of familiarity but I don't I don't really know what what's available and what form people are seeing it in For sure. and, and how they've encountered some of these texts before uh, I mean, if nothing else, again, Pandora's box, we know, if not this specific iteration, it is of a type of narrative that is very popular. And so they would have been exposed to some version of this story. Yeah. And I mean, again, the fact that like Brooks's haircut became the haircut, I think, suggests that like this was pretty well wide seen. And, um, and, and also, uh, with you know si up through silent era like the the national divide is out is just not it's not like there's a, a language barrier to overcome when you're just dealing with title cards being swapped in right. it's um it's a, a very different setup than uh and then, Angel, you yeah. know they've they had the english version made yeah. so it was getting some degree of play Yeah, and 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 clearly was enough to launch Dietrich's career in in a big way. So right. um, you know, we we know that these are we we pick these movies for a reason because they they do they do set up a whole lot in there. Uh, and, and you know, not only are they all kind of treading similar ground in very different ways, um, but uh, but they they just felt like like ones we couldn't ignore in the in the precursor discussion to the femme fatale. Yeah. So is there anything else that we want to draw together from these three films? I feel like we've kind of been touching a lot of this Yeah, we've been weaving a lot together. What else do I... Um, um, uh, you know, I think you bring up an interesting point here about the, like, fallen woman phasing out after this. Um, and, like, like in the key, as in the keynote, you know, did did she have to fall... Did she, not, no pun intended, did she have to step away so that the femme fatale could then rise? 
it's and and of course you can't ignore the the production code. Um, the the Hayes code makes a, a huge difference in what what can be depicted on on screen, which doesn't mean that that there there aren't fallen women after that. But there right. and also these are still European film, right? Like, but it feels like even in well, European Stern, films, Sternberg's, Stern, Sternberg's American film Dietrich Dietrich will return to this fallen woman True. trope oh, um, over and over again. But she doesn't. But she's becomes more prominent, right? Like it's not. Whereas in her, this version, she is a supporting character, and oh no, absolutely, and yeah, in in um uh, and there's more agency. Devil to is the... a woman, and uh, yeah. in Shanghai Express, she's she's much more front and center as uh, as so. That. So yeah, no, I think it it like transmutes. Um, I don't know. Is it just is it is the audiences meaning something more sophisticated? Is it, you know, did it just in the same way that Westerns and maybe now superhero movies got played out? It was just like, I've seen enough uh, movies about prostitutes who are really sad. I, I'm sure that there's an element of that. No doubt. I also think that, um, and as we, as we kind of track this now that, now that the sound era is in play, there's there becomes such an emphasis on on more densely plotted movies mm-hmm. um, where all of a sudden the script um, the the script is being paid attention to in a way that that it's really not yet in well, in these yeah, examples because it's you know we're still coming out of a tradition of like and especially in the silent era you you have an outline and you shoot it and you're like it's gonna be this kind of thing and say whatever and we're gonna figure out the dialogue later and you know, we'll we'll find the story in the edit, basically, right? Like we're gonna get all this footage and then we'll put it together and we'll write some intertitles that'll make it make sense. And if we have to change things completely through the intertitles, we'll do that. Um and so all of a sudden with with a script with dialogue, you're like, okay, no, we have to figure it out before we start shooting. Like it needs to be locked in. Yeah. Uh there's there's much more intentionality when it comes to the the scripting process and uh and uh, and and that's something that really that I'm um, you know plotting dominates the the golden age of noir and uh, and and that's not to say that there there can't be room in that for the this fallen woman type but by that point we're we're not oh the I mean the change the changes in the world between between 1930 and and 1940 is is obviously uh, considerable and you know. I, I, entertainment industry as with everything else is in such a spectacularly different place yeah no, but i also think i think that's a really smart point that it, and i think we kind of touched on it last week too if i remember correctly that like from a, a plot perspective the fallen woman is too passive to be a co-lead right like you need her to be doing like having objectives and shaping the story to be an equal lead in the narrative and especially if it's going to be within a crime context and a crime genre then that means doing certain kinds of things wanting certain kinds of things and using her her femininity femininity to achieve certain kinds of goals in a specific way and so i think that 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 kind of on a functional level forces the evolution from one to the other but i think i think you're right that just in general the the more complex and locked in plotting kind of moves you away from this very passive 
she made a bad choice and then she suffered a bunch and then she died. Like that just doesn't feel. We're going to continue to see that fallen woman archetype, but she's going to be relegated to smaller supporting. Right. Exactly. Like she doesn't go away, but it can't be the the tragedy, the tragedy and the passiveness will still be there, but, um, but there'll be another, uh, another female lead that's, or that's either more virtuous or more, more, um, uh, Machiavellian or what you know whatever it, whatever the narrative calls for at the time but like it that that's that becomes the principal female right. or it moves into pure melodrama I feel like I can't think of a specific example off the top of my head but surely something of like that too of just kind of div- diverging paths to noir or melodrama um but yeah no I mean I think this is like just taking these as a, as a collective representation of the female lead in this kind of context where she is leading a man astray right that's sort of the most fundamental idea of a femme fatale is a woman who leads a man generally astray yeah you know, uh, like this is this is doing that it's just not i think to your point it's just not doing it in a like complex fashion that is sustaining plot in the way that the pulpy stories of noir needs but as terms of like where the archetype starts this is it this is that this is that stuff yeah i'm glad we i'm glad we got to um dig into all three of these and see what they what they kind of help set up for for films to follow any any last notes? Anything anything on male male gaze? We didn't really um, specifically toss that around a lot this time, but uh, but I mean, I think we. Um... Uh, I felt the most in uh, the in Lashi in um, not Lashian in Blue Blue Angel, of course, because that's literally you know the the context of all this is is her being in a in in a beer hall and burlesque show, and like that is that is the function. Um, Think that's the most interesting example here especially because so much of sternberg's relationship with dietrich is built on this like cinema of fetishization and uh, and kind of enshrining her mm-hmm. so it is by definition like that is dietrich who had a major hand in her own image creation is still very much being shaped by how how sternberg shoots her and how uh, and how he presents her to yeah but it's also still like all of it also still feels kind of unsophisticated in the application of the male gaze like it's presenting women and i you know i always think of um voyage to the moon like there's a bunch essentially a bunch of rockets helping to launch the the rocket because it's like women in swimsuits and it's just like well sex sells i guess and that's always been true but <laughs> the like the 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 use of camera technique in service of the male gaze feels very naive and, and underdeveloped compared to where it is like where it eventually goes with like Michael Bay shooting all of Megan Fox or like um, we've been rewatching Mission Impossible and uh, McQuarrie like really ogles Rebecca Ferguson in um, her first Mission Impossible entry. Like it is a, they give her like a full Bond girl moment emerging from a pool in a bathing suit, watching her get out of the pool. Uh, You know, like, a, it feels very weird in Tom Cruise's generally sexless movies to be like, this beautiful lady, hmm, am I right, guys? 
Um, but also just like thinking of that in comparison to this, it just feels very unsophisticated to be like, and again, I think it's the the technical limitations too of the, we were talking about the start of the microphone and the staginess of the dialogue that they're just kind of, the camera's here, the lady's there, we're not going to shoot a panning shot of her body and then a close-up on her face and then a close-up on this and that and there's her butt or whatever. It's it's a little it's more functional. Be trick. It's how to, it's how to like, I mean, it's in the positioning of, a strategic leg on a stool and that that sure. kind of that there there's still it's still very much at work it's a very different time though and, right, uh, and it too, feels so, so like, comparatively tame to what we're exactly tame is the right word and but what, what what you know what what might feel risque then now is just sort of like okay exactly uh there um, there are you know billboard ads that show more skin than what's going on in this movie <laughs> so uh, boy all right so What's in the box? In honor of Kiss Me Deadly, Tristan, what's something that you recently watched that was so good it deserves to be glowing in that suitcase? Okay, so in the last, since we recorded last, uh, I've been light on, I've been light on movie watching beyond what we've talked about here, but I did, uh, and I mentioned this to you, uh, not on the, the podcast though, the other week, I finished up a, uh, a noir TV series, which is totally... Um, not being talked about enough because it's really good. It's called Deadlock. Uh, it is an Australian noir comedy. It's definitely, definitely a comedy. It's like, it's a funnier broad church, uh, if you will. Um, and it's very feminist. And it's, you know, that uh, comedy broad church. <laughs> it's a funny broad church. <laughs> if you will. Yeah, okay. It's got a great buddy cop kind of core to it. Uh, but, uh, but it is a, it's a Tasmanian set noir. It is on Amazon Prime. It is very easy to watch. Um, eight episodes. Highly recommend it. Um, just an absolutely delightful show. Cool. No, you told yeah, you're telling me about it when we recorded last time off off mic, and I'm I'm excited to give that a watch. And maybe if we ever get around to doing a TV, start doing TV stuff, we can we can do it on here because um, it sounds right 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 in the wheelhouse. Right. Um, what what about you? Uh, something I watched recently that I, I really loved was um, Queen of Earth, the uh, first I've Alex. Seen, seen that. Yeah, the first Alex Ross Perry and um, uh, what's her name? Elizabeth Moss. Elizabeth Moss. Uh, I was like Elizabeth Shannon. That's not right. Uh, yes, Elizabeth Moss. Um, and I, you know, I'd love to work together on her smell. Um, she's like a fully committed performer that's a great fit for his repugnant characters um but i also am like in in the pocket for alex ross perry i mean like i think i've loved every movie of his that i've seen i've done listen up uh philip i like listen up philip quite a bit color wheel her smell and now queen of earth and all of them are, are great to fantastic for me um but he's he's a, he's an acquired taste and like queen of the earth is really interesting because it is a very much a like two actors in a in a cabin that they had access to with a couple of other characters popping in for a few days of filming and it's 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 about vibes and mood and the relationship between these women but it it really worked for me um also uh Kentucky adler showed up who's becoming one of my go-to East Coast indie actors where he pops up on screen. I'm like, oh, him. Wonderful. Hmm. Um, 
he yeah he was apparently part of like i hadn't realized this until recently but he was a part of that like mumblecore scene at the time and so he, he you know he pops up caitlin shield pops up a lot of those people kind of show up so um, I probably yeah. like that. I'd probably, I'd probably be down for it. I, 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 I don't know really why I haven't. If if you like his stuff, um, I like yeah. Listen Up, Philip quite a bit. I'm I'm a little cooler on her smell, but it's still good. Um, I think I you'll like it. it. You may not love it, um, but yeah, Elizabeth Moss, great performance. Uh, Catherine Waterston, great performance. Um, it it's yeah, his stuff does it for me. So if you like his stuff and you haven't seen Queen of Earth, watch Queen of Earth. Excellent. If you don't like his stuff, this is not going to change your mind. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, as always, for joining us on this excavation of the darkest, grittiest of genres. You can find us online at celluloiddirt.com or on Letterboxd under the handle Celluloid Dirt. Join us next time, and we'll be jumping a few years ahead, but staying firmly rooted on the continent. The shadows gathering over Europe are about to become a storm. Until then, may your viewings be riddled with scandal and desperation. Good night. Celluloid Dirt is a Strange Phantom production. Written and produced by Tristan Johnson and Fred Pelzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. His work can be found at incompetech.com. If you like the podcast, tell a friend. <laughs>